Well, good morning and happy new year to you. I'm Ruthie Siders. I'm the pastor for Next Gen Ministry and delighted to be um, here, being able to proclaim God's word to us today. Have you ever wondered what might have happened had there been three wise women instead of three wise men that showed up at the manger? I've heard they would have asked for directions and so arrived on time. <laughs> they would have brought a casserole, helped tidy up the stable, deliver the baby, and brought much more practical gifts. <laughs> now, the story of the wise men is the final story in the birth stories of Jesus if we line up the Advent and Christmas stories chronologically. And so this day of epiphany that is coming January 6th, and so this is the Sunday before, is actually, um, I have found out, celebrated for more than just the encounter of the wise men coming to the manger, or coming to the Christ child. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading a book called Living the Christian Year, written by actually a friend of my husband's, his name is Bobby Gross, and in it, Bobby unpacks the deeper meanings and intentions behind the ordinary times of the church year, as well as the holy seasons of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. About Epiphany, Bobby writes this. Three events in the life of Christ are associated with the Feast of Epiphany. The visit of the wise men from the east, the baptism by John in the Jordan River, and the turning of water into wine at Cana. The common theme is manifestation. What has been largely hidden is made more widely known. A star guides Gentiles to a future king. A voice identifies Jesus as the beloved son. And a set of wine-brimming pots reveals miraculous power, epiphanies. Bobby also notes that in many Protestant churches, Epiphany is not celebrated just as a day, but actually an entire season bounded on one side by January 6th and on the other side by Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. Interestingly, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, for years that I can remember, has been called Transfiguration Sunday, and I could never figure out why, because did they just randomly pick a Sunday to be Transfiguration Sunday when we would teach on the time when Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they get to see Jesus transfigured before them and with Elijah and Moses as well on top of that mountain. They also hear the voice of the Father from heaven, just as it was at Jesus' baptism, saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Only this time the Father adds a command, listen to him. So if we picture a season of Pentecost, bookended with January 6th, the visit of the Magi, which you'll see in just a moment, gives us some of the most implicit revelations of who Jesus is. And then on the other side, this explicit declaration by the Father, this is my son, in the presence of these two symbols for years revered in the Jewish faith, Moses and Elijah, symbols of the law and the prophets. I also really like the definition of epiphany from the Cambridge Dictionary. It goes like this, epiphany is a moment when you suddenly feel that you understand or suddenly become conscious of something that's very important to you. And so it's my prayer that as we go through the next two sermon series that will start next week and take us through the seasons of Epiphany and Lent, that we'll all become more conscious of something, or better yet, someone 
very important to us. So today we're going to explore a little more closely the epiphany that's found in this visit of the wise men and discover these implicit revelations of who the Christ child is by looking closely at the gifts that the wise men bring. Now, in my preparations, I was reminded of a story that I'd heard a long time ago, and so I actually Googled it so I could be sure I got the words right, and it's a short story by O. Henry, so you may know it, The Gift of the Magi. Its story begins with Della and Jim, this young couple that live in an apartment, and Della is counting and recounting the money that she has saved in order to give a gift to Jim for Christmas, and all she's come up with is $1.87. So clearly this was written a very long time ago when $1.87 bought a whole lot more than half of a cup of coffee. <laughs> At least at Starbucks. I think Duncan's, it's a little cheaper. But it's not enough for a gift fit for her gym. And so she wanted to buy him a beautiful present. She wanted to get him a, a chain to go with his pocket watch. He had a family heirloom pocket watch that was hung from a worn piece of leather. And so she's pacing the apartment and she catches her, her reflection in an old mirror and she suddenly is inspired with an idea, an epiphany. And she grabs her coat and runs out into the street and goes down into town to a salon and she goes to the proprietor and asks her, what will you give me for my hair? And she takes off her hat and her hair just cascades down over her shoulders, almost down to her knees. And the woman takes a look makes quick work of it, cuts off the hair at the neck, and gives her $20. And so Della is so excited, and she goes from shop to shop throughout the town, trying to find just the right chain to go with Jim's pocket watch. She returns home with this cherished gift in her hand, and as she enters the apartment and catches her reflection once again in that mirror, she sort of stops. In fact, O. Henry says, once Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. I'm thinking she stopped and went, oh, what have I done? But then, O. Henry writes this. She went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. What a great line. She went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. Her generosity, motivated by the love for her husband, led to some unexpected results. So she went to work curling and styling what was left of her hair. And then Della waits for Jim, who's oddly a little bit late coming home from work. He walks in and he's stunned, to say the least, at the look of his wife in short curly hair. And he kind of looks around in a fog, like wondering, is he going to see a big pile of hair in a corner somewhere? But then he snaps out of that fog and he assures his wife that no haircut is going to make him love her any less. But then he tosses this small package on the table and invites her to open it. And he'll, he says to her, I think when you open this, you'll see why you gave me a start at first when I walked in the door. So she opens the package and beautiful, expensive, decorative combs spill out into her hands. Combs that she'd been looking at longingly through the storefront windows for quite some time. Combs that would have looked gorgeous in her beautiful, luxurious long hair, which she no longer had. So her delight 
immediately turned to tears as she thought about how she could not wear them just yet. But she quickly kind of caught herself and, and said, but my hair will grow back. And it reminded her of the purpose she had cut her hair, so she went to find the chain and she presents it to Jim, this beautiful, beautiful chain. And she said, this is what I bought for you, for your pocket watch. Where is it? Some of you know the story. And Jim sits down on the couch. Oh, Henry says he put his hands behind his head and had a smile on his face and said, I think we both may need to wait a while before we can use our presents, for he indeed had sold the pocket watch in order to buy the combs. Oh, Henry finishes the story with this, these words. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. I just have to pause there for a minute. Seriously? We're, Mary's afraid that she's going to get two matching gifts of frankincense and myrrh for her toddler? Anyway, if this is o. o. Henry's words. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. All who give and receive gifts such as they are wise. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the magi. Their gifts were extravagant in their worth, revealing of their love for each other and personally very costly. Yet O. Henry says they are the wisest. They are the magi. So listen now to the story of those who came to the manger to give gifts to the babe. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now I want you to notice a couple things about these visitors. They're called magi, which could also be translated magicians, scientists, astrologers. And somehow down through the ages, these learned men have been dubbed as kings. But there's no evidence here to say that they were kings. There's also no evidence of how many there were. There's no mention of the number of these visitors. Scholars believe that we have the number three because there were three gifts that were given to the Christ child. So these scholarly travelers come to Jerusalem to inquire where the child is who has been born king of the Jews. Now that statement alone must have raised Herod's blood pressure because he considered himself king of the Jews and was not interested at all in anyone um, competing for the throne or for power. And especially when they say they want to go and pay him homage. They want to bow down and they want to worship him. They want to pay their allegiance to him. And we're not told that they did any of that in front of Herod when they came to him. 
The text tells us this news disturbed King Herod and all Jerusalem. So he called the religious leaders together and asked for their advice. They go to the prophetic words of Micah and quote what they presume to be the text referring to a long-awaited Messiah. Now, what's interesting to me is that the religious leaders of the day, the ones who should be looking for these signs, we don't have any indication that they had seen a star or that they were reading any signs into this. They were not asking these questions, nor did they express any interest to go with the wise men to seek out this child. I find it fascinating that the very people who should have been waiting expectantly, who should have been watching for the signs, who who we would think would really be longing for the Messiah to come during their time, that they would at least want to jump at the chance to go and see for themselves. But all that we hear is that they told Herod what the prophecy said, period. Now, isn't that the way we sometimes are? what we should be waiting for with anticipation and expectation that that we really are excited about, if we're honest, we're a little afraid of it actually finally coming true. Like that job that we've longed for, that we thought would be our purpose in life, and yet we continue to hold back and we're afraid to risk and pursue it. Or that relationship that has ended and we just haven't taken the steps to heal and move on or the habit that we keep saying we're going to seek help to quit, but you know, it's really just not yet the right time. Or maybe even resisting a nudge from the Holy Spirit because we don't fully understand what's involved in surrendering and following and serving Jesus Christ. The signs may be all around us, but we're a little too afraid to seriously consider them. And so that which remains hidden remains hidden when we reject the epiphany. Now let's return to the text and see how Herod responded. Verses seven and eight. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. Now, a few years, I was reading this text to a group of middle school kids, and it was great watching their faces as I read those words that Herod said to the wise men, and I asked them, so how many of you think Herod is really excited to go see this baby that's just been called the new king of the Jews? The kids were very perceptive, as today's teenagers can be, and they totally saw through Herod's words. You see, middle school students live with sarcasm and deceptive words almost every day. And they could tell Herod just wanted to know where the child was so he could go and do whatever he could to prevent that child from growing up and becoming king. And we'll see that the wise men were as perceptive as middle schoolers. Moving on at verse nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
So when the wise men resumed their journey, the same star continued to guide them. The light of the star drew them in the direction of Bethlehem. So it seems that Mary and Joseph had settled in Bethlehem for a period of time because the last thing we've heard was the night of the birth and they were in this stable somewhere behind an inn. But now the text tells us they're in a house. So this addresses another of the misconceptions about the wise men. Along with the fact that they weren't kings, and that we don't know if there were three or how many of them there were, we also realize that perhaps they were not at the birth, but sometime later. Most scholars actually believe Jesus was around two years old when the Magi finally arrive in Bethlehem. So what if, when next Advent, you bring out your manger scenes, start your wise men someplace else in the house, and let them travel through the house each week. And don't bring them to the manger until January 6th, Epiphany, when they finally get there. Frankly, I like the symbolism and the message a whole lot more than the elf on the shelf. (laughs) Now, whether or not they were kings, whether or not there were three, whether or not they were there the night of the birth or they arrived sometime in Jesus' toddlerhood, these uncertainties do not change the fundamental message that this small group of learned men had discerned God being active in their world and they were determined to find this new king, one who had been largely hidden. They wanted to worship him, to present him with gifts, and to go on their way making him more widely known. So they enter the house, overjoyed that the star had brought them to this location to find the long-sought-after king. And they open their treasures, three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Interesting gifts, unusual gifts for a toddler, not necessarily on my list for our little grandson, who is 22 months old. I think my daughter would have been very struck with odd, like, what are you thinking, mom? But if we look more closely, I think we'll see that these gifts speak volumes about the identity of the Christ child. Gold. Gold was the common currency of the day. It was used in palaces and temples. It was a symbol of great wealth and power. Gold was worthy of a king, fit for a king, a sign of royalty, even in this humble setting in a tiny village of Bethlehem. So when they give Jesus this extravagant gift of gold, they honor him as king. Frankincense. Frankincense is an incense made from the sap of trees common in several African nations even today. It was a sweet-smelling incense that was used to represent the prayers of the people lifted in worship up to heaven in worship of God. So when they give this little boy a gift of frankincense, Jesus is being revealed as the son of God. And then myrrh. Myrrh was a spice used for medicinal purposes. It was more potent in odor and used in ointments for wounds or embalming the dead. In the Gospel of John, we read that a friend of Jesus, a man named Nicodemus, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to to treat Jesus' body, prepare it for burial after the crucifixion. And so here, about 30 years earlier, When Jesus is barely learning to walk and talk, he's given this gift. For when the wise men give Jesus the gift of myrrh, there is a foreshadowing of the personal cost coming to him as sacrifice. 
their generosity added to love leads to the unexpected, for their gifts point not to the manger, but to the cross and the tomb. We Three Kings is, for some reason, one of the least appreciated Christmas carols. Maybe the tune's not really our favorite. Maybe we spent too many years in our childhood talking about exploding rubber cigars. But listen to the words of verses two, three, and four. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising, voices raising, worship him, God on high. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. These are most unusual gifts for a baby boy, extravagant, revealing, personally costly, yet perhaps the wisest gifts to ever be given. If we go with the scholar's timing, then it's been two years since the excitement of that silent night. The shepherds have long returned to their fields. There's no choir singing glory to God in the highest up in the sky. The angels have returned to heaven, and that innkeeper has gone back to his day job. Mary and Joseph are just two parents with a toddler in diapers. So what a blessing for them to be reminded of that this child for whom they care day in and day out is someone special. While it is an epiphany for the wise men as they are meeting the Christ child, it may indeed have been an epiphany for Mary and Joseph. For once again, they suddenly understand. They are suddenly conscious of something important. And generosity added to love leads to the unexpected. Three years ago, I was making plans to fly from Texas, where we were living, to Boston to defend my doctoral thesis at Gordon-Conwell. And I remember asking my husband, John, if he minded if I swing by Madison, Wisconsin on the way home. If you know your geography, Madison's not really on the way to San Antonio, but... (laughs) Well, I wanted to see a young husband and father named Jim. His wife, not Della, but Catherine, had been one of my students when we had lived and served in Madison. I had, we had stayed close over the years and I actually had the honor to officiate at their wedding in September of 2007. Their first son, Seamus, was born in January of 2010 and their second son, Finnegan, was born in May of 2012. Yes, Seamus and Finnegan. Jim's family is very Irish. But then in March of 2013, Jim was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. He was 31 years old. So when I was making my plans to come to Boston in January of 2014, I wanted to tack on a side trip to Madison to see Catherine and Jim, to be able to hug them, to pray with them, um, to meet their boys, to, to lay hands on them, to cry with them. So I made the trip and I got to meet their little boys And we stole away for a few minutes to be alone and to pray. I had wanted to bring oil to anoint Jim, but I was afraid he would think I was just being way too churchy. And so I wimped out. Something that, frankly, I regret. But it was still a very precious and sweet visit. Two more years passed and Jim fought valiantly. 
But just about this time last year, Jim was under hospice care. He and Catherine had accepted the difficult news that nothing more could be done. And they decided one of the things they wanted to do was renew their wedding vows in front of their two little boys, ages six and three and a half. Yet unbeknownst to Catherine, Jim had personally designed a ring to give her in that vow renewal. And generosity added to love led to something unexpected. While she kept her engagement and wedding rings on her left hand, the new ring was fitted for her right hand. For in their final days and weeks together, they had talked very frankly about the future. And Jim wanted her to find love again. He wanted her to remarry. And he wanted their boys to know that she had their dad's blessing to do so. And so this beautiful ring would remind her of his deep love for her and the blessing that he gave her. It was an extravagant gift. It was a revealing gift of his love, but it was also personally costly to Jim as it was a symbol of him allowing the love of his life to find the love of another. When they were done, their pastor anointed Jim with oil and prayed over him. And three days later, Catherine held Jim's hand as he crossed over the threshold and was welcomed home in the healing arms of his Savior. And today, Jim worships in the very throne room of God, the one who is King and God and sacrifice. Friends, this hope of the resurrection to which we cling was made possible by generosity added to love. The extravagant love of the Father revealed in the Word made flesh was demonstrated on the cross at great personal cost. And this act of generosity added to love led to the unexpected. For on Easter morning, the earth shook and the curtain was torn and the stone was rolled away. The power of sin was broken and death lost its sting. In less than three months from the epiphany of that Easter morning, Jesus, having returned to heaven to be at the Father's right hand, sends the Holy Spirit to empower this small band of followers, both men and women, to continue the work of making that which had been largely hidden much more widely known in their homes, in their communities, and across the world. Generosity added to love led to the unexpected. The world would never be the same. Men and women shared together in ministry with one another. They cared for the widows and the orphans. They preached and taught and healed in Jesus' name. They cheerfully gave what they could to make known what they had seen and heard. And they were known as Jesus' disciples because of their love for one another. Grace Chapel we can be empowered by that same Holy Spirit, be empowered to generosity and love. We too can be magi. But what gifts will we be willing to bring to Jesus in this new year? I've come to realize that our friend Bobby is right. The visit of the magi is worth remembering beyond the day of Epiphany. So what if you haven't yet put your manger sets away Keep the kings out, whoops, keep the wise men out, and start to let them travel back, back to where you might put them next Advent, and then put them away at Ash Wednesday when Lent begins. But allow their presence to continue to remind you to watch for those little epiphanies, those little moments of an aha, 
a sudden becoming aware of what God is doing in your daily life. When we suddenly understand something really important, a love that's more extravagant than all our valued treasures, Jesus, the King of Kings. A love that reveals the object of our worship, Jesus, the Son of God. And a love that blesses even in a moment of great personal cost, Jesus, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, let us learn to practice generosity added to love as we enter this new year with a sense of expectancy for the unexpected. The writer of the carol, We Three Kings, knew that the story did not end with Jesus sealed in a stone-cold tomb. So I invite you to sing with me the final verse of the song that speaks of that which had been largely hidden and is now being made more widely known. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, rings through the earth and skies. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do give you thanks that you shed such extravagant love upon us. You sent your son to reveal who you are to us as he became word made flesh. And you demonstrated your love for us at great personal cost on the cross. May we enter this season of epiphany with expectancy to be surprised to have moments of understanding beyond our wildest imagination of how you are at work in our lives and in our world and how you want to use us to be a part of that work. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, the one who is King and God and sacrifice. Amen.